Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. First on the docket, we have a primo classic story from Dateline, aka the Campbell's Soup and Saltines of true crime. Why is this so good? I could have my cabinets and fridge stocked to the gills with fancy foods that challenge and excite the palate. And yet, I still find myself constantly reaching for this old standby. Dateline always delivers and never disappoints. And an episode where Keith Morrison is at the helm? Well, that's like getting an extra strength dose. Today, I'll be reviewing Kill Switch. A jumbo-packed, super-sized episode from Dateline with Captain Keith Morrison at the helm. It's such a good one, you guys. I want you to thoroughly enjoy it, too. So I'm going to recap this story in a different arrangement, revealing a little info at a time, giving you the remix edition. But before we get into it, if you want to take your listening experience to the next level, Go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids from the show. You will see key players involved with the case, plus a handy map of Lake Coeur d'Alene marked with crucial points of interest. And now, let's go on a little romantic getaway with Larry and Lori Eisenberg to the lovely Lake Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. It's the day before Valentine's Day in 2018, a crystal clear but freezing cold morning out on the lake. But Lori and Larry thought it might be fun to wake up early, get bundled up, and watch the sunrise from their boat. They plan to take a little early morning cruise to the Coeur d'Alene Resort and have themselves a Valentine's brunch. So they brave those frigid temperatures, climb aboard their boat in Sunup Bay Marina, Then they begin their 14-mile ride up to the north point of the lake, 
The sunrise was breathtaking. Larry sends a photo to his son, Dean, who is still in bed and bleary-eyed. He glances at the photo, thinking his folks are nuts for being out on the lake in the middle of February. But Lori and Larry are used to doing things their own way. She was a mom of six girls and working full-time as the director of a nonprofit. He was the father of two who had formerly worked in the timber business as an executive and now blissfully retired. They had been married to other people, but found their way to each other 14 years ago. Now with their blended families combined, Lori and Larry had 15 grandkids and their first great-grandchild. Larry had a whole bucket list of things he wanted to do. He was ready for adventure anywhere the wind wanted to take him. The waters of Lake Coeur d'Alene were calm. Lori gets cozy inside the cabin under a blanket and keeps warm with a space heater, while Larry steers the boat with a steady hand. And then everything goes black. We won't get the answers to exactly what happened on the lake until the details are revealed in court two years later. Plus, I get to give you some backstory. All right, so like I mentioned, Lori and Larry were both betrothed before. Lori was formally wedded to her high school sweetheart, Steve, and they had six daughters together. Steve worked in janitorial services, and Lori was a volunteer for the Chamber of Commerce. But it wasn't a happy marriage. Lori had a few affairs, and then eventually she gets a job as a secretary for a timber executive named Larry. According to his own son, Dean, Larry was known as the used car salesman of timber. And he does very well for himself, making lucrative lumber deals all over Idaho. Lori even goes with him on a few trips. Strictly business, I'm sure. Her daughters remember meeting mom's, quote, friend she met via timber named Larry. A few years go by and Lori's marriage to Steve hits a log jam. But Lori doesn't want to be the one to break it off with Steve, so she makes her daughters tell their father to leave. So they kick Steve out of the house while Lori hides in a closet. And a few years later, Larry divorces his wife and eventually Lori and Larry get married. They purchase their dream property called Cougar Gulch just 20 minutes outside the city. It was a country paradise with beautiful gardens, a pond stocked with fish, and even a windmill. A place for their new blended family to get together and share memories. Larry retired a wealthy man at the age of 68, and he spends his days trading stocks, hunting, fishing, and enjoying his family. Lori was four years Larry's junior and continued to be very passionate about her job, dedicating years rising up the ranks at a nonprofit called North Idaho Housing Coalition, which specialized in helping low-income folks find affordable housing. She was great at her job, but loved spending her free time traveling with Larry and spoiling her grandkids. Larry and Lori Eisenberg had everything. They were respected by their community, beloved by their family, and in great financial shape, as they entered their golden years. Then in January 2018, 
Lori gets called into a board meeting at her nonprofit. They had some questions for her. It seemed a few checks had been discovered with Lori's signature on it. Checks used to make purchases on behalf of the nonprofit that the board did not approve of. Lori brushed it off. She knew everyone was busy and she didn't want to inconvenience anyone. So she just signed off on a few purchases. No biggie. She apologized for her sloppy bookkeeping, thinking that would be it. But the board was very concerned. They put Lori on unpaid administrative leave while they looked further into the matter. Then Lori changes her tune. She pleads to just be fired and drop the whole case. But the board refuses to take any further action until they gathered all the facts first. Everyone agreed to keep this issue hush-hush to protect the reputation of Lori and the integrity of the nonprofit. No one else knew about Lori's meeting with the board. And a few weeks later, the whole Eisenberg clan took a big family vacation down to Florida. Larry went for long walks every morning and gave stock tips and financial advice to the kids. Lori put on a brave face in front of her family, while on the inside, she could feel the walls caving in. As soon as they returned back to Cougar Gulch from their family vacation, Larry started planning their next excursion. He and Lori planned to take a road trip through the American Southwest. Larry eagerly packed the RV with fishing and hunting gear, plus provisions of vegetables from his garden. Lori went back into work, dreading to hear what the board may have uncovered. Quite a bit, as it turned out. It was clear from their initial investigation that Lori had been embezzling money from the North Idaho Housing Coalition for at least three years. Though they would need to do some more thorough forensic accounting to fully put all the pieces together, but it was official. Lori was out, fired from her job, and now facing criminal charges. They gave her the courtesy of keeping her misdeeds quiet until she had time to tell her family. The board all agreed. They did not want this to turn into some local scandal. But little did they know, this would soon make national headlines. Lori returns home and tells Larry she wants to make a slight change of plans. How about instead of that RV trip around the Southwest, they go back to Florida instead? Just the two of them. Larry's down. He really wanted to see a rocket launch and go for a fan boat ride. Lori is relieved he's so amenable. And in addition to crossing off Larry's two bucket list items, Lori also suggests they go on a sail along the east coast of Florida. Once again, the Eisenbergs had a lovely time on their trip. They returned back home to Idaho, and Larry beamed to his family about their amazing time. He loved visiting the Kennedy Space Center and seeing the SpaceX Falcon rocket launch. And this fanboat fanboy also got to cruise around the Florida swamps. However, he did get pretty seasick on the sailing trip, but overall, it was the vacation of a lifetime. If Larry knew anything about Lori's issues at work, he didn't show it. Time kept ticking away, and Lori knew she couldn't hide the secret forever. How is she going to get herself out of this mess? She needed to make a plan and fast, but it was too late. Time was up. It was now February 12, 2018. 
Lori got word that somehow her firing was leaked to the local Coeur d'Alene press. They got a tip about the embezzlement accusations, and they were going to run a story in the paper the very next morning. Now Lori really, really needed to act. We are back to the lake early morning of Tuesday, February 13th. Lori and Larry are in their boat, making their way from Sunup Bay to the Coeur d'Alene Resort for Valentine's brunch. That was the plan, anyway. At 10.23 a.m., Kootenai County 911 gets a frantic call from Lori Eisenberg. She's hysterical, but manages to tell dispatch what happened. According to Lori, she had been asleep in the cabin of the boat while her husband Larry was out at the wheel. All of a sudden, she was startled awake when the boat made a hard jerk. She shoots up and looks out the cabin window. Larry is in an odd position. She calls out to him and he looks back at her with a vacant stare. Then he wobbles around, falling into the control panel of the boat. The key gets damaged and the kill switch is flipped. The engine is dead in the water. Lori rushes out to Larry, thinking he must have just had a stroke or something. He's dazed and incoherent, but still wanders over to fetch the electric trolling motor. And that's when he falls into the water. Lori is panicked. She tries desperately to retrieve Larry. She ends up hitting her head and getting pretty banged up and bloodied in the process. He isn't swimming or moving at all. Larry's body starts to sink and Lori can't rescue him. She nearly drowns trying. So Lori immediately tried to call for help, but she had left her phone back at the marina. Larry's phone must have been in his pocket when he went into the water. Her only option was to motor to shore and try to get help. She hooks up the slow-moving electric trolling motor and works her way across the lake until that motor dies as well. Lori was now stranded, unsure of exactly where she even was on the lake. She goes into the cabin to get some warmth and discovers Larry's phone had been under a blanket. So approximately two hours after Larry fell into the water, Lori was able to place the call to 911. Responders track her location to Powderhorn Bay, about five miles from her original location at Sunup Bay. They arrive to the boat, take photographs, and interview Lori, and the search for the missing Larry Eisenberg begins. Meanwhile, that same Tuesday morning, residents of Coeur d'Alene were waking up, fixing themselves some breakfast, and reading the Coeur d'Alene paper. Perhaps a few spat out their coffee in utter disbelief when they saw Lori Eisenberg's face plastered on the front cover. This well-known pillar of the community was being accused of embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from the local housing nonprofit. Now, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is a low-crime, affluent city known for its lakeside resort and casino and a championship golf course an exciting destination for tourism in the summer, and a little quieter for locals in the winter. The allegations against Lori were huge news in Coeur d'Alene. The small, sleepy city was now abuzz with gossip. By the afternoon, the news that Larry had also disappeared out on the lake only added fuel to the fire. The rumor spread quickly. 
Larry falls into the lake the same day the news breaks about Lori? Coincidence? What if she killed him and made it look like an accident? Where is his body? What if Larry had been in on the whole thing too, then faked his own death? Maybe Larry wasn't even in the lake at all. Days go by. There is no sign of Larry. Lori is a wreck. She hardly leaves her bed, let alone her house. Her daughters do their best to take care of her. Ten days go by. Then a knock at her door. It's the Coeur d'Alene police with a warrant. A search warrant to collect Lori's computer, electronics, and boxes of documents. A few days later, they arrest Lori for grand theft and forgery. She is thrown in jail, and her assets are frozen. Lori's daughter, Chrysaline, co-signs her $75,000 bail to bring her home. At this point, life in Coeur d'Alene has become nearly unbearable for Lori Eisenberg as she awaits her fraud trial. Everyone knows about her financial crimes, and there are whispers getting louder about her having a hand in Larry's disappearance. She doesn't want to leave her family, but she can't stay here any longer. Lori breaks the news to her daughters that she plans on faking her death, making it look like an accident, and disappearing forever. Then, on March 1st, a body washes up in Windy Bay. It was Larry Eisenberg. Lori goes on the run. Hiya, we've got a hot, steamy, full-blown investigation on our hands here. Lots of tids and bits to uncover. So let's break it all down. First things first, we gotta follow the money. After further investigation, plus the discovery of Larry's body, it was clear. Larry had nothing to do with Lori's long-running embezzling scheme. In fact, all signs pointed to him being outraged if he ever found out. But Lori did have a partner in financial crime. A few partners, in fact. She hadn't been simply diverting money from the North Idaho Housing Coalition and funneling it into her personal bank account. No, Lori had set up a very sophisticated system. She created fake companies and would bill various governmental agencies for fake services. They would in turn issue checks to these shell companies. And Lori had set up these phony businesses in the names of three of her daughters. And then later she involves her daughter Amber into the scheme as well. Amber and her husband ran a small farm and were struggling to make ends meet. So Lori told Amber, Hey, my work wants me to hire an assistant, but I don't really need one. How about I pay you to quote work? and just cut you a paycheck every month for $2,400. Amber figures, why not? She wouldn't be hurting anyone. So now four out of Lori Eisenberg's six daughters were connected to her fraud. After months of forensic accounting, the feds discovered that Lori had stolen over half a million dollars from the North Idaho Housing Coalition. However, only 50,000 were traced to her daughters. To this day, they are still unable to account for the other $450,000 that Lori stole. Dude, what on earth did she do with all that money? A big shopping spree at Chico's? Maybe she balled out and had some super deluxe dinners at the Golden Corral? 
Dude, what if she had spent it all on Hummel figurines? I seriously wouldn't be surprised by this. A lot of grannies go loco for these things. I was at an auction once up at the Midcoast trying to get a deal on a nice swingback chair, and I witnessed these two older ladies getting in a bidding war over a Hummel figurine. I think it was that one boy with a goat. These two ladies were going at it. I was shocked at the price this little goat fella fetched. After a crazy amount of back and forth, it finally went to the highest bidding Nana, and the other old lady who lost out threw her auction paddle at her husband. It was truly an amazing thing to witness. Anyway, so that's my theory on what Lori spent her money on. And now it's time we are introduced to a semi-retired detective, Brad Maskell. He has had years of experience solving crimes all around Lake Coeur d'Alene, as well as familiarity with discount Kirkland brand private label products. This will all make sense in just a moment. Yes, Maskell knows the lake well. Unfortunately, he's had to fetch a few bodies out of Lake Coeur d'Alene. He knew the currents and the depths. He also knew that if Larry went overboard in the area Lori claimed he did, one of the deepest parts of the lake, the body would have sunk to the bottom in those near-freezing waters. He helped search for Larry, directing the deep-water sonar to scour the targeted area. But their search efforts were futile. Then, when Larry's body surprisingly washed up in the shallow waters of Windy Bay, he had a deep feeling in his gut that Lori had been lying telling them to search in an area in the opposite direction and against the current from where Larry would later be found. Side note, I spent some time on Google Maps checking out this Lake Coeur d'Alene. It's huge, over 26 miles long, and its outlet forms the Spokane River. The other unique thing about this lake is that it has tons of little nooks and crannies, Lots and lots of bays. So many, in fact, the cast of Baywatch would have to run at normal speed instead of slow motion to lifeguard all of these bays. So yeah, Detective Brad Maskell is already sus. And then he examines Larry's truck and discovers an empty Kirkland brand bottle for diphenhydramine tablets. Detective Maskell himself was a savvy Costco shopper and recognized this as the off-brand version of Benadryl. This struck him as kind of an odd thing to have lying around in the truck. He goes on to examine the photos that were taken on the boat the day of Larry's accident. When looking at a photo of the inside of Lori's purse, he noticed it contained a bottle of naked juice. Detective Maskell had a hunch. Perhaps that juice wasn't so naked after all. Maybe it had a little bit of discount Kirkland brand Benadryl tablets dissolved in the mix. Maskell even did some experimenting on himself, dissolving a few tablets of diphenhydramine into some juice to see if he could detect it. It took him a few big glugs before he tasted something off, and he could feel the effects immediately. Detective Brad Maskell knows how to have a good time. And his hunch was right. When Larry's toxicology report came back, he had a lethal dose of diphenhydramine in his system. And now we come to the part of the story I'd like to call Lori's bad with metadata. Okay, so remember when Lori said she didn't have her phone on the boat? Lies. 
because that sunrise picture that Larry sent to his kids from the boat at around 6.40 a.m. actually was taken on Lori's phone and airdropped to Larry's, which meant she had her phone in her possession the whole time and could have easily called 911 immediately after Larry fell into the water. On top of that, when the authorities seized her computers for the fraud case, they discovered some interesting searches on her web browsing history. Just before Lori and Larry had taken that solo trip to Florida, she had done an extensive search for drowning cases in that exact area they would be going on their sailing excursion. She also had looked up nautical charts of the area showing specific depths and currents. So either Lori was thinking about joining the Coast Guard, or she had a previous plan to make Larry disappear. After the two had returned home from Florida, Larry sent his doctor an email complaining about how sick he felt during their vacation, detailing that he had been dizzy, experienced impaired coordination, and had felt extremely lethargic the whole time they were sailing. All common side effects of too much Benadryl. And now Lori was on the run. She got a head start by checking in with the authorities pre-trial with a bogus phone she borrowed from a taxi cab driver in Seattle, leading the authorities to a dead end. But then a different phone number associated with Lori pinged to the town of Temecula in Southern California, which happened to be where Lori's sister lived. However, the authorities were unable to track her down at this location as well. Meanwhile, Lori's daughter, Chrysalyn, was on the hook for over $75,000 after her mother skipped bail. Chrysalyn was a mother of two and also happened to be eight months pregnant. At this point, they need to resort to hiring a recovery agent, aka a bounty hunter, which Chrysalyn was also on the hook to pay for. And you guys, guess who shows up and wants to make this case all about him? That's right, Dog the Bounty Hunter. At this point, the grandma fugitive story was in the national spotlight, and Dog was the one that actually reached out to Kootenai County in hopes to take on the case. The contract was signed, and they were just about ready to let the dog loose. When Lori Eisenberg turns herself in. So she goes on trial for the federal fraud case. She's found guilty with a sentence of five years in federal prison. Two years later, she is charged with second-degree murder for the death of Larry Eisenberg. Instead of a murder trial, she takes an Alford plea deal, which, to be honest, really steams my clams. It seems like kind of a lazy way out for the prosecution. She essentially gets to maintain her innocence while conceding that the state's case would likely have resulted in a guilty verdict if it had been brought to trial. At her sentencing hearing, Larry's son, Dean, speaks, as well as two of Lori's daughters, on behalf of Larry, asking for the maximum sentence. Then Lori speaks. She apologizes for everything and admits that if it wasn't for her, Larry would still be alive. But get this. She claims she went on the boat with the diphenhydramine spiked juice with the intent to take her own life. And Larry accidentally drank it first. Yeah, not buying it. Neither did the judge. 
She was sentenced to 30 years and is eligible for parole in the year 2050, if or when she turns 96 years old. Four of her daughters received three years probation for their part in the fraud and are now registered felons. Lori and Larry's dream paradise property, Cougar Gulch, was sold, and all of Larry's money went to pay restitution for Lori Eisenberg's theft. And that close, blended family fell apart. And that is the tragic story of what happened on Lake Coeur d'Alene. I hope in my heart that now that this case is solved, Larry can rest easy. And as for Lori, she'll be spending her golden years behind bars. Hope the Hummel figurines were worth it. Bazinga! What a story, right? I left out a lot of nuggets that you can hear on the Dateline episode, Kill Switch. I was especially blown away by hearing Lori's voice during the 911 call and from the body cam footage. Maybe I'm just a naive Pollyanna, but at first I thought she sounded super convincing. So I was real shocked when it turned out she was a murderer. You also will hear from daughters Chrysalyn and Amber. They also sound super believable and remorseful. But after Grandma Lori's big lies, I'm not sure who I can trust. Well, that's not true. I know for sure I can trust Keith Morrison to deliver those little gems of phrases like, it was a great sequoia of a lie, or he was chock-a-block full with Benadryl. Oh, I love it. Can we please get Keith Morrison to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show? I'm also blown away in general by how prevalent this phenomenon of seemingly innocent older age ladies being involved in major embezzlement cases. I expect that, yeah, Grammys are going to be swiping the occasional Splenda packet now and then, but not cleaning out entire coffers of businesses and agencies. Even in my hometown, there was a 74-year-old volunteer at the local food pantry who got caught embezzling over 10 grand. And of course, there's that wild case of Rita Crundwell, the former comptroller and treasurer of the town of Dixon, Illinois. Over the course of 20 years, she embezzled over $53 million from the municipality. You can learn more about the Crundwell case, as well as how pervasive these schemes are all over America, in the outstanding documentary, All the Queen's Horses. And as always, you can tell me your thoughts on today's story and shout out your favorite Dateline episode. Get in touch with me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. 
At the number three spot, we have Believable, the Coco Berthman story. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Coco Berthman became internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young child growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. Is her life story truly one big elaborate lie? That is a series wrap on Coco. We got to hear a bombshell interview directly from the man who Coco alleged abused her as a child back in Germany. That was a crazy interview. This series does not give you all the direct answers, but they have thoroughly investigated so many individual claims that you really get a sense of exactly what happened here. Unlike a typical fraud story like Scamanda, this show goes a lot deeper into those gray areas. There's no perfect victim, but how far can someone push it before they lose all believability? Now that all the episodes have aired, it's a great time to binge Believable, the Coco Berthman story. At the number two spot, we have Magnificent Jerk. Here's a rundown from the show page. On the last day of her grandmother's life, journalist Maya Lynn Sugarman finds a box of forgotten screenplays that set her on a journey to uncover the truth about their author, her late uncle, Galen. She discovers that he was a leader of a Chinese gang and that he went to jail. And in a final twist, he poured his life story into a screenplay that was turned into a 90s Hollywood action movie starring Rob Lowe, Burt Reynolds, and Ice-T. This story is not at all what I was expecting, but in the best way. I've never heard anything else like it. I'm completely hooked. Maya Lin is a beautiful storyteller. There's so much depth and richness in this story. This would be an especially wonderful road trip listen. It feels like you're watching a movie in your mind. I can't wait for the next scene to unfold in Magnificent Jerk. And at the number one spot, we once again have The Dream Season 3. Here's a reminder from the show page. Past seasons of this award-winning investigative podcast looked at pyramid schemes and the world of wellness. This season, we're getting to know the gurus and life coaches who claim they know the secret to living our best lives. Is it all in our mindset or our privilege or are we all under a spell? Speaking of road trips, this week, Jane Marie journeys to northern Michigan to gather some juicy intel from a high-ranking multi-level marketer. This is a very fun listen. I always appreciate that Jane Marie never makes fun of the people who would participate in an MLM. Instead, she focuses on the shady practices and misleading recruitment tactics many of these popular companies have used to get filthy rich. If you want a fun hang that will help you potentially avoid some costly mistakes, tune in to The Dream Season 3. Now for my miss of the week. We have Dateline Missing in America. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Are you the key to solving a mystery? 
That question is at the heart of this original series from Dateline. Correspondents Josh Mankiewicz, Andrea Canning, and Keith Morrison report on perplexing missing person cases brought to Dateline's attention by their social media followers. Each episode focuses on one person's story as told by those left behind. Listen carefully to the details, descriptions, and clues offered by the family, friends, and investigators. Something you hear might jog a memory that could help authorities crack a case. Ugh, yeah. As much as I love original recipe Dateline, this version is far from Campbell's Soup and Saltine Crackers comfort. And I know it's not supposed to be. And don't get me wrong, I think it's an incredibly admirable mission. I'm happy these cases are being elevated and the voices of missing people's families are being heard. But I have a tough time listening to this one, partly because there's no resolution and it's just a heartbreak after heartbreak. Then afterwards, social media is let loose to speculate wildly. And shocker, not everyone is being kind and respectful online. And again, I get that ads are how podcasts make money and they allow everyone to access the content for free. But this show has got a lot of them, and it starts to feel a little bit icky. I know this might be an unpopular opinion, but Missing in America is not for me. Ugh, but I just can't fully bring myself to send it down the podcast queue trap door. <sighs> so instead, I'm gonna drive it up North Country and release it out on the farm, where it can live a happy life. Find out next week if the dream will stay in the number one spot as the series continues, or if a new show will come through and usurp that coveted position. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three, and what show did you have to let out to pasture? I will meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to true crime feed. I thank you so much for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.